Well, good morning. And let me extend my gratitude and thanks to the elders here at Westminster for an opportunity to come and, and preach for you. I want to apologize in advance. I've got a little allergy thing going on. And so I apologize in advance if I clear my throat a few times. I want to pray and then let's dive in. Father, we thank you that we have your word. And I just pray, Lord, uh, that as we apply our hearts and minds to your word, it would be sanctifying to us and glorifying to you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Now, while most of us recognize the foundational importance of such a declaration, I think it's also fair to say that these words can often come across as trite, if not even a bit patronizing. We might even say that in their overuse, they become somewhat generic which may well lead to some of you asking or wondering, why have I chosen to title the sermon as such? Certainly, trusting in the Lord is, in fact, a central biblical theme. It is conveyed throughout the Old Testament, most specifically in the wisdom literature, but also in the Old Testament declaration to fear the Lord. In the New Testament, trust is inextricably bound up in the notion of faith. Uh, Dr. James Kennedy is known for applying the term uh, fiduciary, uh, typically meaning one who acts in trust over another's assets here. He employs a simple illustration using a chair. He'd say that it would be one thing to believe that the, the chair is there to make truth statements concerning the chair, but an entirely different thing to place your trust in that chair by sitting in it. The older I get, the more I realize the significance of that illustration. When I was young and I first heard that, I thought, what's the big deal? Sit in the chair. But when you're older, if the chair doesn't work out. So, of course, trust is indeed central in Scripture. But you may still be wondering why I pulled that message, trust in the Lord, here in Psalm 3. After all, David never explicitly tells us to trust. There is no command to do so, unlike many, many other places in Scripture that do, in fact, give an outright command to trust We don't have to go far to find one. Psalm 4 gives us one. Verse 5 says, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Or as many of you I'm sure are familiar, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding to name but a few. Well, the answer is twofold. First, there are some rather practical applicational components to observe here concerning how it is that David comes to be able to place his trust in the Lord in the midst of the dire circumstances that he finds himself in. And second, with the covenantal promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 in mind, that, that David's house will endure forever, that God, uh, before God and at his throne will be established forever, forever, we must remember that David is the Lord's anointed one, but he is but a type of Christ. The anointed one, as is declared in Psalm 2. And so we must consider that this psalm is not merely given to us in the mouth of David, even David as a betrayed king, but from the very lips of our Lord, who knew all too well the bitter taste of betrayal. So 
So as a way of kind of getting into the psalm, I want to observe a couple of things that are firsts in Psalm 3. We're early in the book of Psalms, but Psalm 3 offers us some firsts. Uh, For instance, it's actually the first psalm that calls itself a psalm. Mizmor is the Hebrew word, simply meaning a poem to be put to music, something set to music. It's also the first psalm to denote authorship. It is a psalm of David. You might notice that in the Uh, what we call the subscript, the top. And for some strange reason that scholars seem to not be able to agree on, English translations set this apart in a subscript. But in your Hebrew Bible, Bible, that's verse 1. It's part of the Hebrew text, part of the Scriptures. And so we have a psalm, a denoting of authorship, and of course it is the first psalm to give us an historical context. It is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now this historical setting establishes that David does not issue forth some call to trust in the Lord from a place of comfort or of safety. In fact, as I've already stated, he doesn't issue forth a call to trust at all. Rather, he acknowledges that he does not trust. He's wrestling here. And he implements some means of grace to get to the place where he can begin in obedience to God to place his trust back in him. David finds himself in a situation that produces numerous obstacles here for him to trust. In fact, a brief look at the chronicling of these events where they actually took place in 2 Samuel 15 and following will show us that David was battling with at least three rather significant obstacles. And I'm not going to spend much time here because that's not where our text is, but just to give you a context. David is fleeing from Absalom. Absalom and his son is is, has, is is rising up. He's creating a coup. And he's implementing that coup and it's meeting with a degree of success early on. And we read these words in 2 Samuel 15, verses 13 and 14. It says this, A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come! We must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. So one challenge here, one condition, one, one obstacle that David is having is real fear. He, he's really literally fearing for his life and the lives of those men who have remained loyal to him. But just a few verses later, As David is making his way out of Jerusalem, fleeing from the city, we read this. But David continued up the Mount of Olives. And and let me just stop there for a second, because that would be probably what he would do. He would cross uh, the Valley of Kidron, ascend up the Mount of Olives, and out into the relative safety of the desert. And so we see here in verse 30 of that same chapter that David continued up the Mount of Olives. But it tells us that he was weeping as he did it. His head covered, and he was barefoot. And all the people who were with him also had their heads covered and were weeping as they went up. And it's not hard to deduce why David would be weeping. He is experiencing deep, deep betrayal. And it's no small thing to know that that betrayal includes the many men who were by his side. Political and military leaders who became probably like brothers to him. But far more painfully is the betrayal of his own son. David has real anguish. Deep Deep anguish.
one more that I think is worth noting. Again, just a few verses later, in the beginning of chapter 16, David does meet with some uh, relief. A man named Ziba, the steward of Meshibbeth, had brought him some supplies for him and his men. But right afterwards, we read these words verse 5 and following in chapter 16, as King David approached Barum, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gir, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops, the special guard, run David's right and left. As he cursed, he said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrels. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed his kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to Reuben because you are a man of blood. Now David is already in the context of fear. He's in deep anguish. And along comes this man who has a rather different interpretation of how it is that David became king. Because he's from the household of Saul and he himself is clearly bitter and angry. And he's insulting David. And it's not hard to imagine that here David would... would take on some real, genuine doubt and really deeply struggle. Have I done things wrong? But David knows, and we know the history, that it was really Saul who sought David's life in many different kinds. He'd go back and forth. He would repent. From the time that David had defeated Goliath, there was a, a song that rose up that Saul, or Saul, that Saul had slayed a thousand Philistines and David 10,000, and this made Saul jealous. And for that, he sought David's life, and he would repent from it and then seek it again. But never would David do this. Never would he would even defend himself, even though his men called for him to do so. David said, I will never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. As long as Saul was king, David would honor the office. But this man has a different view, and it's not hard to imagine that David might come to a place of doubt and wrestling, wondering what's happening. And so David has these contexts to deal with. You could probably fill in the blank here. I think fear, anguish, and doubt cover a broad range of things that are obstacles for us, prevent us in some way from trusting initially first in the Lord. Fill in the blank there, but those are are pretty broad. And I think it's not hard for us to begin to see how these show up right away as we enter into the psalm. O Lord, how many are my foes, we read. How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. David is not only outnumbered, but overwhelmed. Many, 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 we read. It's not hard to hear David's fear here. And certainly not his doubt. Put yourself in his shoes. Many people saying to him over and over again as his enemies that God won't deliver you. And it's not hard to imagine that you could begin to question. I think doubt is one of the biggest vulnerabilities for Christians. Doubting where we stand. Doubting whether God has forgiven. And David, by the way, is responsible for half of the Psalms. Clearly he's an able theologian. But he wrestles, as we all do. David knew that everything was well. He would never say that. But in the context, it's a struggle for him. But we get something else here that is a first in Psalm 3 at the end of verse 2. 
In my Bible, it's on the right-hand side, set apart in italics, and it's that little word, selah. It's a musical term, usually means to pause, to reflect, and I think its placement here is worth taking just a moment to consider. Because I think it's uncomfortable for us. I think for many of us, the idea of pausing in this place of struggle, in this place of acknowledging where we're doubting, where we're not trusting, where we're fearful that maybe God is not. Where we don't have His timeline in, in, in mind, let's say. I don't know whether that's a, a result of uh, sin in general or maybe something a little bit more correlative to uh, American pragmatism, but, but none of us like to sit in that. We want solutions. We want to fix the problem. The moment there is a problem, we want to fix it. And on the other side of this sailor, you do get some of that. But I caution you, don't refer to it as a solution. David says, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift my head. This is just obedience. This is just David declaring what is true. What he knows to be true. I remember a surprising statement that came from a podcast, a sermon I had listened to a few years back uh, by John Piper. He was just noting uh, that as he, was, as he was on his way into church that morning, that he was just trying to get some Bible in his head. And I, and I found that surprising because for a guy like that who is so established in the evangelical community, uh, for him to say something like that, which is a very rudimentary truth that we all should be doing, it just kind of struck me like he still does that. Just simply trying to get some Bible in him. And what he's getting at is the idea of, of what we call a Christian meditation, counter to a secular or sort of pagan ideas of meditation where we would attempt to empty our mind. Good luck with that. That's impossible, by the way. But, but Christian meditation is a simple idea, right? Just fill your mind. Fill your mind with the things of God, with the Word of God. And we're to meditate. We're told that throughout Scripture, the Psalms in particular. We're called to meditate day and night on the Word of God. And in a sense, this is what David is doing. He's bringing about this truth. And think about this. Think about his words when he says that. You are a shield around me. Could it be that David, who has also recently received covenant promise from God, be thinking of God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that begins with these words, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. He's bringing the word of God to mind, acknowledging truth. He says, you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. 1 Samuel 2 tells us that God lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 110 speaks about lifting lifter of, the, of our heads. It's an expression of, of protection. In the ancient world, when, it, when a king would be victorious over, over the one he conquered, he would literally put his foot on their neck. Maybe you've seen this in a movie or something. It's a, it's a picture of humility and shame and vulnerability. And that's bad enough for us, but in a culture that is saturated in a shame-honor dynamic, it's even more intense. And David is saying, 
I'll not be under the foot of Absalom, that God will lift my head. A word of great encouragement for David. But he's not done there. To go back briefly to the idea of Christian meditation, a man by the name of Donald Whitney, who writes a lot on the subject, writes this as a definition. He says this is what it is. Christian meditation is deep thinking about the spiritual realities in Scripture for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. Deep thinking about the truths of God for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. See what David does here that I think is most important for us to acknowledge. David doesn't simply articulate something true in the midst of his struggle and doubt. He prays. To you, O Lord, I cry aloud. Verse 4, to the Lord I cried aloud, sorry. And that means I lift up my voice, literally. I think that's important to note too. Most of the time I think I'm guilty of making prayer sort of monotone, one note, words that I say. Maybe we like to pray in a multitasking culture, mumbled under our voice as we're driving to work or from work, or in the midst of five other things that we're doing. Maybe some of you like to pray while you're Facebooking. I'm looking for somebody who's guilty. No? The Psalms, in particular, speak about prayer being very tactile. There's a comprehensive nature to it. David cries aloud. We we hear about falling on our knees, lifting our hands. It's very active. I can think of Psalm 6, for example, where David speaks about his tears soaking his mattress in the night, groaning and, and moaning and grieving and crying out loud before the Lord. It's not a simple prayer. It, it's a prayer that acknowledges the creature-creator distinction. That he falls on his knees in his weakness. He realizes the severity of his situation and his inability. And he calls out to God. And the text tells us he answers him. God answers him. But not just generically. There's something significant here. He answers him from his holy hill. And that has at least uh, two points of significance to think about. One is, if we've read through the Psalms, it should be fresh in your mind from Psalm 2. We read, I have installed, in verse 6 I have inst- six I, of Psalm 2, that is, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And, and what is Psalm 2 about? It's a declaration that God is sovereign, that He, in fact, will set His king on His holy hill, that men of power and wickedness, even when they pool their resources in an attempt to thwart or establish their own coup against the kingdom of God, God mocks at them. And then rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, verse 5 says. Psalm 3, not surprisingly, is a demonstration of a coup, an attempted coup that fails. But David doesn't know that yet, and he cries out, and he receives answer from his holy hill. David is a king who has been dethroned. 
David is not in the comfort or safety of Jerusalem. He's fleeing for his life. He's a king who doesn't have authority or power right now, but he's crying out to God as the king of kings. I wonder, I said to you at the beginning that trust in the Lord can sometimes be received as a bit trite if we're not careful. Here's another one that can be a little bit that way, a little bit patronizing. How many times have you had this happen when somebody, when something happens in your life, either personally or to the country, and it throws you in a bit of a panic and someone comes along to you and says, it's okay, God's still on his throne. You ever heard of that? It's a little, can be a little patronizing. That doesn't mean it's not true, though. David as king is hearing from the king of kings, and that gives him a sense of comfort because he's saying, God, I'm answering you, David, not with some generic empathy, but from a place of power and authority, from my holy hill. I remain enthroned, and I have promised you that your throne will be established forever. And it gives David comfort, and again, we get another Selah, another pause. Pause to reflect, firstly, on what we're enabled to do. And then secondly, on what God does. And the result of that is a sense of peace. David is able to do something that I think for many of us in our culture we fail to do, struggle to do. He's able to rest. His trust in the Lord enables him to rest in Him. Verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Now, I think it's true that this verse has a general providential dynamic to it. I lie down, I sleep, I wake up because the Lord sustains me. I draw breath because the Lord sustains me. We can think of Colossians 1. It tells us that the Son of God is the invisible image of God, the firstborn of all creation, and that creation is made by Him and for Him, and that He upholds that creation. He sustains it. So yes, there's a sense in which there's a general providence here. But I also think that there's something specific to David's current situation. Fleeing and in the desert, David would be able to rest And you can imagine that someone who is fearful and in anguish and doubting would not have a good night's sleep. I'm sure you can relate to the idea of those things preventing you from sleeping well. David would have any number of fears just there. What if Absalom and his men catch up with me in the night? What if there's a spy that remains among the people that are with me? But David's able to take rest because now he can say, I know that no matter what happens, it does not fall outside of the providence of and will of God. And David says, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Notice what happens here. Verse 1 is, a, is an expression of David's concern, his genuine fear. Verse 6 is a counter to that. I will not fear. The many, or the tens of thousands here, drawn up against me. And we read these words in verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Let me give you one more sometimes trite or patronizing saying. I'm sure you've heard it said in the church... 
that if you're not careful and you take your eyes off of God and put them on your circumstances, then the circumstances can be so big and devastating to you. You've got to take your eyes off your circumstances and put them on the Lord. How many have ever heard that? I don't know if I'm allowed to ask for a show of hands here at Westminster. Is that allowed? Or? Yeah. There's places where that's allowed and some that it's not. I think there's a sense in which, of course, that too, is there's truth to it, is there not? Of course there's truth to it. But we can, that can become a little trite. Let me suggest to you that David takes his eyes, he realigns his gaze on, on the Lord here, trusting in Him, but I think he always keeps an eye on his circumstances. Maybe you might say he keeps his peripheral vision on his circumstances. And here's why. When David goes to sleep, he's able to rest in the providence of God. When he wakes up, there's no delusion here. He doesn't wake up expecting everything to be great. He doesn't expect that Absalom's going to come back and confess his sin to him and, and repent of it and everything's going to be okay. He has no delusion of that. When he wakes up, the first thing he does is issue a call to arms, a battle cry, as it were. Arise, O Lord. And there's precedent here too, by the way. Biblical precedent. It's reminiscent of Moses in Numbers 10, for example. When they would enter into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Sounds a little bit like what David says here. Arise, O Lord, he says, Deliver me, O my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. And notice how David, like Moses, speaks against his enemies, not because of some vengeance in him, but because they saw the enemy, their enemies, as enemies of God and of God's people. <clears throat> you might say that simply put, there's a righteous anger. We get this battle cry, arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. And here again is another counter, if you will, to verse 2. If you look at verse 2, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And here David says, deliver me, O my God. Notice that David is not using the covenantal name God. He's using the same language that those who, who tried to instill this doubt and fear in him used, except for he personalizes it. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, an expression of humiliation. Break the teeth of the wicked, likening the enemy to wild animals whose strength would be removed when their teeth are taken away. And verse 8 states that David is assured in contrast to verse 2. That the Lord does, in fact, deliver. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be in your people. And here we can notice that we get one final Selah. And this is a bit unique, by the way. By my count, there are only four Psalms in total in the book of Psalms that have a Selah at the very end calling us to pause and reflect on the Lord's providence for His people and the certainty that He does, in fact, deliver His people. But this psalm also points us inescapably to Christ. 
Tertullian, a great second century church father, wrote of David, he sings to us of Christ, and through his voice Christ indeed also sang concerning us himself. In the Psalms closing verse, David not only acknowledges that deliverance does come from the Lord, but he also said, may your blessing be on your people. Think about this for a moment. David, as a betrayed king, could have justified brutal punishment for his people in the wake of this failed coup. But instead, he extends the Lord's blessing upon them. He is their benevolent king. Does not Jesus do the same? Just as David was the people's king who knew betrayal and gave blessing in return, so too does Jesus, the king of kings, who came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. Moreover, they betrayed him. He too gives blessing in return. In fact, the very gospel itself reflects this truth. Christ takes our sin and our shame and gifts us with righteousness, his righteousness. But maybe you're thinking that while David was in fact delivered from his enemies, delivered from death, that, well, countless others never enjoy such benefits. Well, it's true that David was delivered from death. He still suffered. Not only the betrayal of his son, but also the finality of never being able to reconcile that relationship because Absalom was killed against David's wishes by his men. And he grieved greatly. But he was, in fact, delivered from death. And though David sings to us of Christ, he remains but a shadow or a type. And where David was delivered from death, Christ delivers us through death. In fact, in his death, he destroys death itself. He strikes our enemy, our last enemy, death itself on the jaw and breaks its teeth. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, death has been swallowed up in victory. So whether in life or death, let us trust always the Lord and his providence. Amen. Amen.